Hello there and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad and today I have a very special guest. His name is Amir Taki and if you have joined Bitcoin as part of the 2017 or 2020, 2021 class, most likely you're not going to know who he is. But he's the guy who created the BIP standard. He is the one who created the first alternative implementation of Bitcoin with LibBitcoin. He also had lots of contributions to privacy. He tried to create the first privacy wallet for Bitcoin, which was called Dark Wallet. And there's a lot that he created and he had always had this adversarial approach to Bitcoin and tried to reduce the amount of trust in the days of Gavin Andreessen. And I was fortunate enough to meet him for the first time last year here at the Blockchain Week in Mallorca. And I'm happy that a year later I finally get to interview him. So hi, Amir. It's really good to have you. Hi, Vlad. Nice to, nice to see you. I'm going to ask you about the early days of Bitcoin because I saw your presentation two months ago in Prague. And you wanted to point out how the culture has changed. And I really want to know what it was like in the early days. You got in 2010 or something? Yeah, in uh, late 2010. How was Bitcoin in the early days? Um, you know, uh, everybody was there because they saw this thing, which, you know, they saw potential in it. They had like belief in the thing. And so there are a lot of people that were came together because of an idea and, you know, they were and it was still very early days. So there was a lot of speculation about what could happen, um, that this was something that had a lot of uh, use to correct injustice in the world, etc. And it also brought it. It kind of, the, broadly speaking, brought together four major communities. Uh, one of them was the free software, open source hacker people. Another one was like the Austrian economist kind of, um, you know, gold people. Uh, another one was like the crypto anarchist, cypherpunk people. Another one with the agorists, which is a revolutionary market ideology. So all those people, and, and Bitcoin was kind of like a mix of those ideologies, the free software, uh, you know, gold, um, you know, uh, crypto, uh, privacy driven, and, um, and uh, revolutionary market kind of, that was like the early, really early part of Bitcoin's history. Yes. So when you first got in, you started coding, right? You wanted to contribute to the project. There was a lot of stuff missing. Most of it had no graphic user interface. It was all command line, mostly at the time. Uh, well, actually, there was um, the main thing that I, I wanted to do when I got into Bitcoin was to make a, a peer to peer uh, poker software because I was a professional poker player. Uh, but, you know, then I, I started getting more interested in Bitcoin itself and its wide ranges of potential. And uh, then, you know, I made like lots of different software around it. Uh, I also made the exchange, which was the first UK Bitcoin exchange. And it was the second biggest 
uh, on the market after MTGOX and then also made the first Bitcoin conference in Prague in, in 2011 and also made the Bitcoin conference in 2012. So we're involved in a lot of things, but yes, gradually the thing that I became more attracted to was the Bitcoin implementation itself. Um, that happened because uh, I started working on wallets. I, I started working on Electrum wallet with Thomas V and I was contributing to that. And then I was like, okay, we need to have a robust uh, backend infrastructure. The implementation of Bitcoin is not sufficient for that. Started working on Bitcoin uh, implementation software. And as I was doing that, became more, uh, went deeper into the questions about how Bitcoin is designed. Started to work a lot on the anonymity, privacy question. Uh, wrote the first implementation of CoinJoin. Wrote the first implementation of Stealth Addresses. Um, did a lot of research into privacy, anonymity in Bitcoin. And that kind of, that kind of became my main interest or main focus about Bitcoin. I remember you said in Prague during your presentation that in the first six months of Bitcoin's existence, most of the conversations that we have today have already been had. And the only difference is that the scales and the amount of money pouring in had changed. But pretty much all the ideas have been consumed in those early days. Is it really so? Uh, in, in what sense do you mean? I can't remember that. The debates that are being had within the community about what Bitcoin is and how it works and what you can do with it. You said that on the forums in the early days, libertarians and cypherpunks were discussing most of the stuff that's already available today. But ah, yeah. at the time, it was mostly conceptual. Yeah, so like a lot of the ideas the or like big discussions today, if you actually go back into Bitcoin's roots, you can see it like started very early in its days, like often the seeds were there of, of, of those ideas. And um, for example, uh, the idea of Bitcoin uh, being uh, immutable technology, um, that was that came out of the first initial conflict in Bitcoin's history, which on one side was Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn and their, their clique or their cronies at the Bitcoin Foundation, which were business guys that were trying to assert power over Bitcoin. And then the other side was like Luke Jr., myself, other, other people, which... Um, we kind of wanted to, uh, we kind of had a different perspective. The kind of more corporate perspective was uh, Bitcoin as a payments technology. Um, the, it would be augment the credit cards and the banks, the financial network. They were very much into having uh, big money institutions, mass adoption, etc. Whereas the, our side, which is a more idealistic side, um, we we were like we would say this is where this comes from in Bitcoin is, is that you know Bitcoin is not for buying a coffee you know Bitcoin is like a new form of money that was what we we were said that come actually directly from us and um, and and we placed more emphasis on so those guys they saw Bitcoin as a product 
and you know it's a, the product to get mass adopted it has to be like user friendly um it has the payments have to be cheap etc uh whereas our side we were like okay it's not a product it's like um um it's it's a network it's a technology it's a it's an open source software and an open source software is different to a proprietary software proprietary software is controlled by a company so for example like microsoft windows or the iphone or you know um I don't know, Photoshop, they all come from companies. And when the company, the marketers go, okay, we need to do this, then they say, okay, we're doing this. Whereas an open source project or a free software project, the stakeholders is the community of people around it, the developers, the people who contribute code. And it's it's typically more decentralized and, 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 and there's a coordination that happens. So when the community wants to change shift focus, shift strategy. There's a process where you have to go and you have to build consensus and you have to gain support from all the stakeholders in the community who, you know, after a while you, you construct this consensus that becomes the basis of a new standard that which you move towards. So the thing we felt threatened by was that these guys were trying to close off or capture power so, for example, by trying to exclude developers, like that's what Gavin, like the first uh, presentation about Bitcoin was actually by me in, in Amsterdam uh, at a conference of bankers called the EPCA. And uh, after I did that, Gav, Gavin Andreessen DM'd me on IRC and he said, look, hey, uh, I saw your talk. I think you should not talk about uh, Bitcoin in public again. I was like, Dude, who the fuck are you telling me what to do? So anyway, and then, you know, always, and then also, like, uh, whenever I tried to submit code, he'd reject it. It became, like, became very difficult to contribute to Bitcoin. And on the other side, we started to witness that they were, like, making these rapid changes to the Bitcoin code that weren't uh, undergoing the proper... Uh, uh, community process, the democratic community process. So that was why we started to put in place standardization because we're like, look, we need to slow this stuff down. We need to s s pre to prevent this capture that's happening. So that conflict or that uh, uh, ide ideology has evolved today into this uh, conservatism that exists about Bitcoin and people reason like Bitcoin should never change, etc. So it has its roots back then, and 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 so do uh, a lot of the I ideas or a lot of the ways people talk or reason about Bitcoin. So, for example, um, actually, when I met Sipa uh, or Peter Willer in 2011, he actually said to me that, um, "Oh, you know, uh, the main thing I'm interested in Bitcoin is the scripting language." You know, I'm not even interested in, in Bitcoin as money. I'm interested more in the smart contract programming functionality. Um, so, um, but it's kind of interesting now today that Bitcoin is like, has, has consolidated around this uh, uh, idea of money. And that goes back to uh, the, the contingent of Austrian economists with their critique of the Federal Reserve. And, and how uh, gold is the best form of money. And that was a very powerful uh, driving idea that was at the heart of Bitcoin in its early days. It's, and and the, the thing is, 
the, these ideologies or these communities with these philosophies, they served a very important uh, purpose, which is that they were able to focus the community towards a goal to, that enabled it to drive forwards. So Bitcoin is very much an outgrowth of that early community ideology. So the question now is, okay, where does Bitcoin go from here? Um, those assumptions that we had before, how do we question those assumptions uh, and reevaluate and, and, and set a new direction, a new strategy for the future? After Mt. Gox collapsed, that was really the precipice of me saying, right, this has to change. We need a totally transparent exchanging system um, and base it on gold instead of fiat. Voltoro is the hard money exchange which helps you beat inflation with instant swaps between the best stores of value known to man, gold and Bitcoin. Unlike most exchanges, Voltoro understands the importance of transparency and security. All gold holdings are secured in top-tier Swiss private vaults and fully insured against theft, fire and more. Maximize your purchasing power today by going to voltoro.com slash Bitcoin Takeover. This is not financial advice, but gold has been humankind's most reliable store of value in the last 6,000 years. Do your own research. Use promotion code TAKEOVER for a one-time bonus of one gram of gold for the first 50 new customers buying gold with Bitcoin. Are you concerned that your friends, neighbors or KYC exchange might know how much Bitcoin you own? It is time to take your financial privacy seriously with Wasabi Wallet, a free and open source wallet solution which makes use of mega coin joins to mix your coins with those of hundreds of other strangers. Thanks to the groundbreaking Wabi Sabi engine, your coins get divided in smaller untraceable units which grant you great anonymity for both huddling and spending. Download Wasabi Wallet 2.0 today at wasabiwallet.io and take advantage of the mega coin joins. It's free and it's open source, so don't trust Verify. What are you going to wear when Bitcoin hits $1 million? The same old $20 t-shirt? Try Maison Machi, the designer clothes made in Paris by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They're not your average mass-produced sweatshop clothes. Machi will ask for your measurements and tailor every piece of clothing according to the shape of your body. So you always look and feel great in your t-shirt, hoodie or dress. It's all made in France by real artisans who also happen to be Bitcoiners. 
which is why Maison Mashi only accepts Bitcoin as payment for their clothes. Get a Maison Mashi t-shirt or hoodie today, it might even help you find a girlfriend. And once you do get a girlfriend, you can also buy her a Maison Mashi dress. Stop having fun looking poor and check out MaisonMashi.com. That's M-A-I-S-O-N-M-A-A-C-H-I.com. Wow. <laughs> there, there's a lot to be said and there's a lot to unpack. I wanted to bring out something that I read. I don't remember this from my Bitcoin involvement days because I came way later. But there was this guy, Dan Kaminsky, and he tried to break Bitcoin early on and actually wrote an article about how he failed. And sadly, he passed last year. Mm. And there's always this difference of understanding of what Bitcoin is. Even today, you have the self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalists who are actually Bitcoin conservatives in the sense that they claim that everything that is not Bitcoin is a scam, including the stuff that gets built on top of Bitcoin and is not the base layer. And we should ha have ossification as soon as possible. And on the other hand, you still have cypherpunks like Sipa, you mentioned him, Peter Welly. And he experiments, even though he used to do work for Blockstream, and I think he went to chain code nowadays. But he did, I think he contributed to a scripting language for smart contracts, which is called Simplicity, which is proprietary by Blockstream, I think. I'm not sure if it's open source. I don't want to say something stupid, so uh, I'm going to leave it there. But I was going to get to the question of what is Bitcoin anyway? Because some people describe it as a store of value. Others say, no, it should work as money and we should make it fungible for that. You even had your attempt to make it fungible with a privacy wallet. But I is it also Ethereum stuff with counterparty? Because that's a thing that exists. There's also Lightning Network. There's also RSK, which imports smart contracts from Ethereum on the merge mine sidechain. It's like a huge ecosystem. It's a platform for lots of stuff, yet we resort to narratives when we describe it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's sad about uh, Dan Kaminsky. So you know, uh, you know, R.I.P. to him. Um, yeah. So uh, interestingly, you know, I mentioned this thing about SIPA uh, and the smart contract platform. So there were people inside of Bitcoin, and and actually, I just let's go back a little bit actually because. When I first got involved in Bitcoin, the code, a lot of people were like, oh, the Bitcoin code, it's like this mystical, like, perfect thing. It's dog shit. Like, I just, it has to, it's, today it's still dog shit. It still hasn't been uh, fixed properly. And then very bad um, engineering stuff there. Like, anyone who digs deep is going to, like, realize, you know, that it's... It's like uh, very legacy. Anyway, uh, when Satoshi wrote the code, you know, it's also was kind of an experiment. Uh, inside of the code was a half-finished poker client. Uh, there was like a marketplace that he was working on. And they were coming to that and they ended up getting removed. And then the scripting language as well. 
Um, at some point, there was a bug found in one of the opcodes. Not a big deal, you know, just something minor. But the immediate reaction by the, by the developers was like, okay, let's comment out the scripting language. So what they did is, is uh, they just kind of disabled it using this uh, uh, templating system that Gavin Andreessen put in, which restricted... Uh, uh, Bitcoin contracts to a specific type of predefined contracts. And then what happened later is other projects, I think Rootstock, tried to start building on top of the Bitcoin blockchain using OpReturn. The developers that reacted aggressively towards that to try and stop them storing data in the blockchain. And, uh, and uh, then uh, also, uh, you know, people like Vitalik, for example, came to the Bitcoin developers and he was like, oh, you know, can we remove some of these restrictions so that we can like create some other more interesting applications on top of Bitcoin? And then everybody was like, no, Bitcoin is like, it's it's money. It's, uh, it's like, we can't like, uh, uh, we can't like allow new things to happen. It will break it, etc. So there, there wasn't any space that was opened up for experimentation, and uh, and that ended up with a significant uh, uh, community of stakeholders in the early Bitcoin community leaving to Ethereum, which became the second. So that value, which was Ethereum, actually probably might have stayed w within Bitcoin, and uh, also. Um, there was this other project before, I think, Rootstock, which built smart contract uh, uh, functionality on top of Bitcoin. The difference with Ethereum was that they issued their own token. So by issuing their own token, they were able to uh, capitalize the project to fund development. Now, in terms of Bitcoin, I got into Bitcoin in late 2010. I wrote, I did a lot of development on Bitcoin. I contributed billions of dollars worth of value to the Bitcoin ecosystem. But I, I never kept any Bitcoins. All the money that I had, I would reinvest. Uh, I was investing all of my time and energy and mental focus into developing Bitcoin software, you know, to help its mission, to make it succeed. Uh, I, I, I wasn't accumulating Bitcoin. I wasn't putting mental energy into thinking how to make businesses based around Bitcoin. And the end result was, and you even if you, if you look at other guys who worked on Bitcoin, like Bitcoin wallet developers or, or Bitcoin core developers, you'll see they're not billionaires. But the people that did get very wealthy off of Bitcoin are the people who uh, accumulated Bitcoins or started businesses around Bitcoin. So that is a problem of misaligned incentives. The... Uh, that the people that are contributing value to the ecosystem or a very important core uh, uh, community of people weren't able to capture value back to fund their enterprise. So I can, for example, fund more developers that can contribute to Bitcoin, etc. So, um, so, uh, so that, um, that change to the scripting language was only meant to be temporary, but it somehow ended up becoming uh, permanent over the over the long course of history of Bitcoin. So, uh, but but also um, there is this uh, economic ideology which is very rationalist, um, which uh, 
which a lot of people believe that, you know, if there are other crypto projects um, which are able to uh, gain value, that they're somehow taking value from Bitcoin. But actually, um, we see that the crypto markets don't operate like that. The value comes into the market for whatever reason. And most of the time, that although these days a lot through stable coins, a lot of that value enter through Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is usually a very good index of the overall crypto markets. But the, the overall value proposition in the crypto markets is not simply Bitcoin uh, store of value meme, which is like one narrative about Bitcoin. So you ask your question like, okay, what is Bitcoin? Well, uh, some people will go like, okay, Bitcoin is store of value or Bitcoin is money. But then what is money? Okay, like money, it can be a store of value. It can be a, a means of deferred payment. It can be uh, a medium of exchange, uh, etc. However, the, this is not what money is. These are properties of money. And actually, if we want to understand like what money is, we have to go back into history. And if we go back, uh, you know, there's this story of money where I give an apple and he gives a cabbage and this guy has like an orange and I want to get it, but blah, blah. So, uh, bam, money appears. But actually, if you look at the, the origin of economics in history in ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Samaria, money actually didn't emerge like that. What archaeologists find is they find a lot of these tiny clay objects with markings on them. And what these clay objects were, were tokens. And people could take uh, livestock, they could take grain, they could take precious minerals and metals, they could deposit them in storehouses. First of all, they were, you know, storehouses owned by the state, and then they were owned by royalty, and then aristocrats, and then commercial centers. And, these, and then these uh, storehouses would issue them with a token. And then with this token, uh, there could even be contracts, stipulations on there that, okay, well, it gives, it gives you right to like one cow three weeks from now or a bag of grain, you know, uh, three months from now. So from that system of issuing these clay objects, also something called a buller emerged, which is a way of taking several of these tokens and putting them inside of an object to aggregate them together, kind of like an account. And these, these objects containing several stores of value or, or several of these tokens could be exchanged between people. And what emerged from that was a very sophisticated uh, uh, banking network that existed all around the Middle East. Uh, sophisticated banks that it had all the modern operations of banks, such as derivatives, futures, options, very liquid market in those derivatives, uh, gyro settlement of debt, you know, um, all, all, uh, uh, Forex, different banking operations. And, and it was only much later did actually money begin to emerge off that system, you know, uh, which is with the beginning of the Persian Empire, which was to start the bimetallic gold and silver standard. So what does that teach us about money? Well, there's this idea that money is like fungible. If I have a dollar, it's a dollar. But actually, a dollar in a Swiss bank account is very different to a dollar in a Seychelles bank account. A dollar in a Swiss bank account can send it to people in Swiss, but they won't accept a dollar from a Seychelles bank account. So different, they have different types of liquidity. So what does that mean? It means actually that, that the financial networks are more primary than the money itself. The money is just uh, uh, 
a, a system of account between these different networks. And um, and not only that, when you know people always talk about interest rates, they talk about like inflation rates, etc. What is the inflation rate? Well, the inf there is no universal inflation rate, really. Like if, if you look at the inflation in El Salvador, it's going to be different to the inflation rate in the United States because what we're essentially looking at is is something that that represent those networks and the value of those of those networks inside of that. So people say, okay, what is Bitcoin? Is it a protocol? Is it a form of money? You know, is it like a network? It's like if we start a project together, like let's say in, in classic business projects, you know, we would issue a, a stock and we'd sell that stock to investors to raise capital. Although in crypto markets today, you sell a token. It's the same, very similar thing. That's why the governments are trying to ban it. Uh, if people are like, oh, Amir and Vlad, they're really smart guys. Like I trust their, their project. Then our valuation is going to be much higher. People are like, oh, the value that they're going to create 10 years from now, 20 years ago and now is going to be very much in demand. And if I'm offering some token that will be able, that people could use to provision that service, for example, in NIM, is, which is an anonymity network, the token allows you, which is a replacement for Tor, to provision um, anonymous infrastructure. So then people are like, okay, there's going to be a lot of demand for that thing in the future. So therefore, I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, buy some token now because it's going to go up in price. And, and what this means is that, for example, uh, I, I worked on uh, free software for uh, more than a decade, for since like uh, 16, 17 years on free software. And for most of that time, we were extremely poor. Like we were like, we didn't have any, any resources. We were creating a lot of value for the world, but we had no way to capture some of that value back that we could use to expand what we were doing, like to grow our mission. And that is a classic problem of creative people. So anyway, if we create this project, we now have this uh, stock or token or whatever that has, has a value. It represents the value that we create, the people inside that network, the technology, the concepts, the ideas. And if now there's another guy, like some smart cryptographer, and he's involved, people are like, oh, yeah, he's, he's a really smart guy, and he's working with those guys. Okay, therefore, I think that project's worth a lot more. So actually... What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin's a community. There is a, a certain body of people. They're united by a philosophy and ideology. They create technology. The technology is is not in one direction. It can change at any time. But it's influenced by the ideas that are predominant in the network, the ideas that uh, influence developers, that influence the community of users that decide where to put their wealth. For example, with the um, the SegWit, it, it, it showed us that the base of power is with the users in the network. You know, the users have a very big uh, constituency power, and if you convince the users, uh, then you 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 can essentially influence the entire direction of the project. I know that you have always been interested in privacy. And that has been one of your biggest concerns, and that led you to start working on the dark wallet. But my question right now is, why do you think it took so long 
from dark wallet to wasabi i think it's like four five six years i'm not sure exactly when you stopped working on dark wallet but it there is a huge gap of a lack of privacy work in bitcoin and in the meantime i think that the blockchain analysis services became much more elaborate so why do you think that there's such little interest for privacy in bitcoin i think it's to do with the economic incentives there, there's not like if if I work on a privacy wallet for Bitcoin, um, a lot of this stuff is very difficult. I have to invest like all of my energy every hours of the day, and you know right now um, I have a team of developers, and I'm completely obsessed with mathematics. I have like very little time to write code, but I write some code as a kind of uh, concept. For, for my team and I give it to them and I guide them and they're very competent guys and you know they uh, they also can be working on very important projects for humanity like you know one of our, our developers he was making a, a mobile phone operating system another guy is really uh, a smart engineer etc they they also have like no shortage of important mission critical things to work on you know uh, so you know, to to so that stuff all needs funding really and um, needs money. But the problem with the Bitcoin is that there's a lot of it. Like for example, Ross Ulbricht, um, he uh, he's a martyr for the Bitcoin cause, uh, and he is the main reason why uh, Bitcoin uh, is is where it is today essentially. And he uh, and in his mum uh, tried many years to raise money from the Bitcoin community, couldn't raise any money. So then she tried this thing, which was selling an NFT in ETH, and was able to successfully raise, uh, I think it was twelve million for for Ross Ulbricht's cause and for prison reform. And then, more recently, Ross made this um, beautiful NFT, which was. Uh, an animation of a plant that he he grows from apple seeds in his prison that every time the prison guards try to take away from him and uh, and then show him growing old it was really beautiful and, and very very touching and a lot of the bitcoin people were like oh no you should you should launch that on bitcoin don't launch that on eth and uh, so they did but they they barely raised any money at all and so that was very uh, disappointing and very sad because um, Ross Ulbricht is a hero for Bitcoin, and yet there's such there's like he he even he who gave so much for the Bitcoin cause that he is now in prison for life. Like Bitcoin, Bitcoin first got big because of the Silk Road. Like anybody who says like I would have got big anyway or you know, it wasn't because they're lying. Like Bitcoin got big it, because Silk Road hit all the news and everybody wanted to know, like, how did it work? It was using this thing, Bitcoin. And that's when people were like, whoa, what is this Bitcoin? And, and, and we weren't even able to. And there's a lot of big whales in crypto community. And then I think I, and then a lot of these guys, they're like, the, the, the problem with the Bitcoin community is um, in 2017, I kind of went uh, to all the Bitcoin guys and I was talking about like, oh, you know, we need to 
have a sh- we need to like re- we need to uh, f- focus into the cypherpunk crypto anarchy philosophy and a lot of the I saw a lot of the Bitcoin communities captured by these influencers that go from conference to conference and they're not really interested in like the grand mission of Bitcoin. They're more interested in like being part of a social scene, uh, boosting their status. So it was like very fake. And also like anybody who's kind of like have charisma or is proposing like some big change is like a threat to their power. So it's like it's like the community is kind of captured by these interests, you know, that kind of want to want to stop it uh, evolving or developing. And a lot of the very good minds have already like left from Bitcoin to other projects. All the best cryptographers, um, you know, like most of the good programmers, etc. There's it's like that's where the the new things are being made. That's where all the the resources are, you know, where all the energy is, etc. All the new wealth creation. Whereas in Bitcoin, anytime somebody tried to propose something new, it's like, no, Bitcoin's perfect as it is. And even as you said, people building stuff on top of Bitcoin, you know, they're like, oh, they're Bitcoin believers. And they even like maybe try to create their own token. And then um, people are like, no, you're not allowed to do that. So it's, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. Amir, I know I, I know you have to go. Yeah. So my last question for you, even though maybe next time we meet, we can go into Lib Bitcoin and other stuff, because there's a lot of interesting work that you have done. But for now, just tell everyone listening to this or watching, how can they follow you and your work? I have a, I have a Twitter account. You can find me there. We also have an online community. If you go to dark.fi and you click the docs, and then there's IRC, which is our chat. You can join our, our chat there where we're, where we're coordinating. And we also have our code, online the dark.fi uh, code. You can see the changes being made to the repo and the, the commits being made. We also have documentation. Uh, we have a Telegram group where we post... It's very low traffic announcements only, so people can just listen in there. Um, yeah, that's the best places. Or search DarkFi on Twitter as well, then you can see different posts about it. Oh yeah, read the DarkFi manifesto. Go to dark.fi and click the manifesto link. I suggest that. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you, Amir. Thank you so much. After Mt. Gox collapsed, that was really the precipice of me saying, right, this has to change. We need a totally transparent exchanging system um, and base it on gold instead of fiat. Voltoro is the hard money exchange which helps you beat inflation with instant swaps between the best stores of value known to man, gold and Bitcoin. Unlike most exchanges, Voltoro understands the importance of transparency and security. All gold holdings are secured in top-tier Swiss private vaults and fully insured against theft, fire and more. Maximize your purchasing power today by going to voltoro.com slash Bitcoin Takeover. This is not financial advice, but gold has been humankind's most reliable store of value in the last 6,000 years. 
Do your own research. Use promotion code TAKEOVER for a one-time bonus of one gram of gold for the first 50 new customers buying gold with Bitcoin. Are you concerned that your friends, neighbors or KYC exchange might know how much Bitcoin you own? It is time to take your financial privacy seriously with Wasabi Wallet, a free and open source wallet solution which makes use of mega coin joins to mix your coins with those of hundreds of other strangers. Thanks to the groundbreaking Wabi Sabi engine, your coins get divided in smaller untraceable units which grants you great anonymity for both huddling and spending. Download Wasabi Wallet 2.0 today at wasabiwallet.io and take advantage of the mega coin joins. It's free and it's open source, so don't trust Verify. What are you going to wear when Bitcoin hits $1 million? The same old $20 t-shirt? Try Maison Machi, the designer clothes made in Paris by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They're not your average mass-produced sweatshop clothes. Machi will ask for your measurements and tailor every piece of clothing according to the shape of your body. So you always look and feel great in your t-shirt, hoodie or dress. It's all made in France by real artisans who also happen to be Bitcoiners. Which is why Maison Machi only accepts Bitcoin as payment for their clothes. Get a Maison Machi t-shirt or hoodie today, it might even help you find a girlfriend. And once you do get a girlfriend, you can also buy her a Maison Machi dress. Stop having fun looking poor and check out MaisonMashi.com. That's M-A-I-S-O-N-M-A-A-C-H-I.com. <laughs>